you can get away with having a soft kid or two here and there, but too much of that will get you beat, you know, and some of these kids, you know, they, they look great, you know, and the whole thing about, you know, they're, they look great coming off the bus and all that stuff. But, you know, really the, the fabric that ties, you know, that substance that ties ability to winning is, is toughness. Welcome to Sauce Talk, a podcast about sports and the mind and living well in general. This is Billy Hansen, and today's episode is an interview with Coach Brady Bergeson. Coach Brady is currently the head coach at Regis University in Denver, and we walk through his background here as both a player and then into the coaching profession, so I won't replicate that here on the in the intro, but the kind of shortened version of his bio is just that he's been a tremendously successful head coach at the Division II level. He took his first head coaching job in 2011 with Western Oregon University, and he took Western Oregon from being a kind of middle-of-the-conference team to 18 wins in that first season and the best regular season finish in school history with a fourth-place finish. And then in his fourth season at Western Oregon, he took the Wolves to their first regular season championship in the GNAC and their first tournament appearance in school history. And they also knocked off Oregon State in the preseason that year. And so after that awesome season, he took the head coaching job at Regis University. And it took Brady only three short seasons to take Regis from a school which had missed the playoffs for many consecutive seasons to its first RMAC championship, RMAC tournament championship in school history, and its first NCAA tournament game victory since I think 1996. And so Brady is now entering his sixth season as the head coach at Regis after four straight RMAC tournament appearances. Brady showed up for my senior season. His first year as a head coach at Regis was my final year as a player. And I describe here on the podcast the kind of impact that that season had on me as both a way to finish my basketball career and also the kind of impact it had on me in moving forward in my life after basketball. After graduating, I was a graduate assistant coach, so I worked for Brady on the coaching side, and I was a part of that championship season, so I really got to see firsthand how a championship organization operates. So on the podcast here, after walking through Coach's background, we dive into some of the philosophies and principles that really stuck with me, having both played and coached for him, and As you'll hear here, these philosophies really do transcend basketball. These are ideas and concepts that can be applied to many different aspects of life. And Coach Brady is someone who I really respect and admire, and it was truly gratifying to get him on the podcast and to dive into some of these topics that really made an impact on my life at large. So if you like this episode, you should stay in touch with my work by subscribing at my newsletter which is billyhanson.net forward slash newsletter. You can also help me out by leaving a review wherever you listen to this or sharing it with someone who you think might like it. So without further delay, here is Coach Brady Bergeson. Brady Bergeson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Billy, it is an honor to be here. I appreciate you having me. And um, I woke up this morning thinking about it, and 
I wanted to thank you for inviting me. You got me out of my comfort zone. So I feel <laughs> great. Um, yeah, it's good. I feel uh, challenged. I, I, it's good for me. Appreciate good. you having me. Yeah. Well, I've, been, I've had this episode in mind since I started the podcast. So I'm, I'm really excited too. So tell me about your college basketball playing experience. So uh, I played at Chapman University, which is a Division three school in Orange County, California. Um, it was, you know, it was the right level of competition for me as an athlete. I grew up in Longview, Washington. So, you know, smaller town, Northwest, um, and went to college a thousand miles away from home. So that was part of the story is for me was kind of getting away from home and, and a different experience altogether. Um, and I, I love Chapman. It was, uh, I love the school of the people, the, the basketball experience for me by itself didn't carry the load, I guess, so to speak mm. uh, for me, but the, um, it, it certainly, um, sort of complemented, uh, the other great things that were going on there. And I certainly learned a lot, uh, basketball. I learned a lot about life. Uh, it was a good experience. I, I absolutely, uh, I wouldn't have traded the experience for anything. The basketball experience. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire experience. Awesome. Okay. And were you in the playing rotation and or starting your whole career? No, no. I, um, I wasn't, I wasn't a great player. I was tough. Um, I could, you know, I was a point guard. I could break pressure. I could get us into our offense. I, I wasn't a great player. Um, and it took me a long time to sort of learn reading and thinking of basketball. I was, as I was brought up in the sport, I was really just trained, uh, in the discipline of how to, um, follow orders. Um, and my high school coach was one of the greatest influences in my life. He's family runs an incredible high school program, uh, at Mark Morris high school. His name is Bill Backmus, huge influencer on me. Um, what we didn't, what I didn't get much of in, in upbringing was reading and thinking the game. So I think that, um, I could really get you into a set and isolate, uh, you know, I could, I could put a beautiful screen on you and pop to a certain spot and things like that. If I was told what to do, I did it a hundred percent. My value as a basketball player, Billy came as, uh, I was tough. Um, I would make energy tough plays. I was a decent leader. Um, and that's where most of my value came, uh, as my college career unfolded, there was a lot more talented guys around me, got guys that had, you know, uh, just, just better basketball players understood how to play more. Mm-hmm. Took me a while to come to terms with that and understand it for what it was. But, um, uh, but that was part of my story certainly. And it took me a while after my playing career to sort of develop more of a actual feel and understanding of the game and more nuanced sense of that. Okay. And I remember you once told either me or the team when I played for you or when I was working for you as a coach that you basically knew you wanted to be a coach from the outset so were you did you already have your eyes set on coaching as a player when did you decide that you wanted to pursue coaching yeah i had a moment of clarity when i was somewhere around 16 years old and i was standing in my high school gym 
And I don't, there wasn't a specific event. I just realized at this moment that I had sort of almost been training my entire young life up until that point and pointing this direction towards coaching. It's all, it's all I could imagine doing. And so I knew I had total clarity in that moment from that moment on what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do at the college level or the high school level or, or exactly, but I knew I was going to be a basketball coach mm. at that point in time. Um, and so I think I'm much more the exception than the rule there. I think they're, you know, I don't think most people understand, um, or get that sort of calling, uh, and that level of clarity certainly not at that young of an age, if ever. So yeah. I feel fortunate. I can't explain it beyond that, but without a doubt, this is sort of just how I've been, you know, mm. from the way I played, you know, and I grew up just playing, just, you know, being a kid, um, I would find myself creating imaginary leagues, entire teams and rosters and leagues and playing out, you know, every, all 65 games of the NCAA tournament, mm -hmm. you know, in my front yard by myself, one on <laughs> my imagination, you know, and, yeah. and you just ad nauseum, and I would just do these things just because that's the way my brain sort of ordered itself. And, um, it's where I found myself. It's where I found, you know, my passion. And, um, so I'm a big believer. I'm a huge believer in that. If, if you've confined your passion, you just stay close to it and then figure out how to make a living around it. Mm. And, um, I've done that, you know, I, you know, they, you could certainly look at my path and say, well, you make some great choices, maybe this way or that way or financially or whatever. But, um, you know, I've, I don't think that's also necessarily where happiness uh, comes from. So for me and my path, um, I think that's some of the best advice I got, I guess. And, and I don't mean to go off on a, a big tangent, no, no, but, great. but yeah, the, the coaching way of being, um, just spoke to me and it was very clear. And it, I, I, the best way I can say it, it was, uh, I think a calling for me. Yeah. Nice. And so I'm interested in the, how you jumped in after you graduated college what were the first steps you took to get into the coaching path? Yeah. So I really wanted to get a GA position, um, much like you did here, Billy. Um, and I had an opportunity to stay at Chapman with the staff, uh, that had coached me. I actually decided I wanted to learn something different, something new. And I had a, one, an assistant coach of mine, my sophomore year at Chapman, his name is Rich Bossmeyer. Another coach whose family, uh, who's been a, an incredible influence on my life and I'm still very close with, um, he was an assistant coach at Cal State Fullerton after he left Chapman for two years. And that program had struggled and they all got let go. And this is a year, you know, spring of 2000 when I graduated college. And I, you know, he was the guy that I really took to just the way he was on the court. I was just so drawn to him, his energy and the way he made you feel on the court and you, the type of guy who you just, I would have died to play for, you know, you just tell me what to do, coach. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get it done for you. Mm. That sort of impact on me, um, in the one year that he coached there. And he's that kind of guy. And I, you know, I just, I had a series of conversations with him leading up to graduation saying, Hey coach, I want to be with you you know, I was dying to maybe get on as a GA at Cal State Florida. And he said, Brady, listen, we're all going to get fired here in a couple months. Hmm. 
I'm going to come join me. I'm going to take over this high school program at Tustin High School. Come help me build this program up for two years, and then I will I will help you find a foot in the door in a college game if that's where you want to go. And mm-hmm. true to his word, he did exactly that. I came on board. I was his varsity assistant. My second year there, I got to coach the JV team, which was head coaching experience, which was invaluable. I got to learn under him, and I would just I would be at every practice every morning. I substitute taught um, for those two years just so I could have enough flexibility in my schedule to to coach with him and be at everything that I could possibly be at. Um, and the, the, um, the real, I guess, sort of the part of my story that I would say was the best decision I made at that point in my life, knowing what I wanted to do was, you know, he told me also, he said, listen, you're going to have to be able to prepare yourself to work for nothing or very little for a while. Mm-hmm. And he was spot on right because I was a nobody in basketball terms. You know, I, I wasn't a big recruit. I wasn't didn't play at a high level. I didn't play for a big program. I didn't, you know, I didn't. My dad's not a coach somewhere. You know, like I, I was a nobody, and mm-hmm. I was just basically going to need to, you know, crawl on my stomach through the muck, and you know, let my merits speak for themselves over time. And so, what I did was I substitute taught for a hundred dollars a day, um, and I lived in a garage. I squatted essentially in a garage with a bunch of three friends that lived in the house. So I paid $150 a month. Hmm. And for two years, I lived in this garage without insulation or anything else. I just, you know, got some rugs and a couch and a futon. <laughs> and that's where I lived for two years. But I did it so that I could afford to save everything, uh, which wasn't a lot, you know. And I was convinced at the end of two years that the $5,000 I had in my bank account could last for two more years <laughs> if I had to make it. So, um, I went off and, and true to his word, coach Bossmeyer, um, helped me, uh, get a foot in the door at Metro state with, uh, Mike Dunlap. Um, he had cultivated a relationship with coach Dunlap, uh, during that time. And we would drive from, um, California out to Denver at the time and watch a week of practice and spend some time with that staff. And anyway, so he he really set the stage for me and and um, gave me that opportunity and I I was able to make the most of it at that time and um, so I was there at Metro for six years and moved on to Sacramento State for three as an assistant Western Oregon for four as a head coach and now Reed five. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, it's an amazing story and it seems like part of many people's experience into the coaching path is that you really have to sacrifice and it's so competitive um, that you really have to make some of those early sacrifices and it's still not guaranteed that you'll get to where you want to go. But yeah, I want to, however deeply you want to go into this, I'd love to hear how your Mm -hmm. first impressions and then ultimate impact of Mike Dunlap and working for him. Now he hadn't been in the NBA at that point. This was pre Bobcats. This was him at Metro when he had, you know, such a great legacy at Metro with, I don't know how many championships he won, but just tell me a bit about what it was like working for Mike Dunlap. Yeah, I can't say enough. And I, I don't think I could tell my story without, you know, mentioning him. Um, so coach Dunlap, I got on spring of 2002 and they had just, uh, come off their second national title. So, Mm. Uh, in his nine years at Metro, you know, they played in three national title games, won two of them. 
and were sort of the standard of division two basketball for that, um, time period. And, yeah. um, uh, so I worked four years for coach, uh, at Metro and it was, it, it's hard to, to be honest, Billy, it's hard to separate, um, what sort of many of my coaching philosophies and where they came from. It's hard to separate a lot of them from my experience with coach Dunlap is so much of what I learned was more about how to think, how to see the game, uh, so much more than any of the actual basketball specific things was how to teach, how to, uh, you know, how to operate, how to understand what's going on around you, how to, situate yourself within an administration and a school setting that makes you um difficult to fire mm. right politically speaking like that that part of the things that people don't think of but most importantly just i learned a lot about myself and i learned about a lot about myself through him i learned a lot about how to see and think about the game philosophically just the foundation that i was standing on a basketball from basketball terms were so small and narrow in scope and he really opened up my scope to, to my vision of of what it was to coach and how to go about things it's really difficult to sort of separate myself from that experience and say before and after it's hard to do that yeah. um so in many ways just the the fabric of sort of the uh, you know He's ensconced in the fabric of, of what I am as a, as a coach and a person in so many ways. Um, and I just owe him so much for that. He's a, he's a brilliant human being and uh, an unbelievable worker. Hmm. And uh, so the, the four years I spent with him was the most valuable unofficial degree, four-year degree I will ever earn. Um, you don't get a piece of paper for it, uh, but easily the four years of – the steepest learning curve I've ever had in my life mm. and, uh, and challenged and uncomfortable all the time. Um, it was not easy. It mm. was, it was anything easy working for him, but it was great working for him. Mm. Uh, he's clearly you can hear by the, the way I'm, I'm talking about it. You know, this is a huge influencer on me and my life. And, and we're still obviously really close to yeah. this day, but, He's uh, he's an extraordinary uh, teacher and mentor and just human being to have kind of in your corner. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And I I picked up some of that just being around him briefly when I met him and had lunch with them with you. Um, just the way he carries himself and the energy he puts off, it's it's pretty striking, even in a short, small sample like that. So, one thing I'm curious about, and you can. Correct me where I'm wrong here, but I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes when you first got the head coaching job for Western Oregon. I can imagine that after climbing the ranks and um, fighting your way up and, like you said, living on low income for a long time, when you finally got your break to become a head coach, I can imagine that there's a lot of pressure in that first season to be successful, build a culture, and probably a lot of uncertainty when you actually have the reins yourself for the first time. 
So I'd love to know what your mindset was like going into that first season and what that experience was like having a, having a team for the first time. Yeah. What a special experience that was. Um, it was, uh, it's one of those years where I'm, I'm really proud of a lot of the things that, that we did, but every time you gain another year of experience, you look at some of the other years and go, God, I wish we'd have, I'd have known this, or, (laughs) you know, I'd, I'd do this differently then. And, you know, one of those things you'd like to have back, we had a really neat team. We had, uh, you know, that team had really a talented bunch of returners. The senior class knew how to play. And the reason that I, you know, that I had gotten the job essentially was that, uh, you know, I think, I think they had sort of just gotten stuck in this rut of mediocrity there. Mm-hmm. And um, they, there wasn't a lot of the guys weren't being challenged. They were kind of sleepwalking through things. And, and really, in my opinion, that the program just needed to be ignited. Mm. It, it was, you know, it was, it was, um, packed with fuel. It just needed to be ignited. And so, you know, I came in and I should say we came in as the staff with a, a I think a good game plan in terms of what, and a clear vision of what needed to happen with that specific group. But year one was not the rebuilding year at Western Oregon, uh, the way it was at, at Regis. And so because we had really a talented group of seniors, you know, we replaced um, most of sort of the the bench sort of six through 15 was kind of we uh, we brought in a bunch of new guys. But boy, I'll tell you that the guys that they had coming back, um, they kind of knew how to play. And like I said, just need to be ignited. Mm. Uh and so I had a lot of fun with that group. I would say this, your question's more about what was that like? And this group was talented, but they were a little goofy and I had a really hard time with their goofiness and I didn't trust it. Hmm. So I was really serious with them and I didn't let them, uh, and, and a lot of this was driven by my own insecurities because I hadn't been a head coach before. I was very secure in what we were doing big picture and I had a, a clear vision. And I think we executed a lot of things well. I think we did a lot of things well. Um, but, you know, the uh, a lot of what we did, you know, down the backstretch, I was operating a, a little bit too much out of insecurity and, and fear of my team's tendency to just get goofy. Hmm. and it's silly at times and not really focus in and be as serious as I was about it. And so, um, I probably pushed that team and drove them into the ground, uh, physically <laughs> as much as anything, probably as the year went on. And I think maybe if, if I had been a little more calculated and confident and, um, experienced in that way, I think maybe we could have, uh, you know, gotten lucky and punched through, um, uh, into the playoffs and so forth. We were fourth place place in a team that um, sent four teams in the NCAA tournament and and not one of those teams lost to a different conference in the tournament, if that makes sense. The GNAC was the most powerful team in the uh, conference in the West Coast at the time. Hmm. Western Washington won the national title that year. Hmm. You know, we split them. We beat them at their place. We lost in overtime at our place. Seattle, I mean, the, the league was loaded at the time and we were really good. And I think at worst, we were probably a top 20 team in the country. Mm. Um, 
and basically missed making the NCAA tournament by about a game. Um, mm. So anyway, uh, it was it was an incredible experience. You learn. It was humbling because you learned so much about, uh, you know, as time goes on, you look back, like I said, and you and you go, oh, man, I wish I had known this. I wish we would have done this more or this less. I think this would have been beautiful for that team. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, you look at it and you go, look, that was, you know, year one and we were culture setting and, and uh, we got the things accomplished, the big picture things accomplished that you'd want to. Um, and so a lot of things to be proud of too. Yeah. And then did you spend three or four years? I forgot. How many years did you spend at Western Oregon? Four. Four. And then which year did you beat Oregon state? Yeah. So that was, uh, my last year there. Okay. Uh, In year four, we had a really good team. So the year two at Western Oregon was really the rebuild year. We graduated all these seniors. We signed a bunch of freshmen. We had, um, a very young team then the next year and we took our lumps. Mm-hmm. Uh, the following year, uh, we got up to a slow start and then a strong finish and won our first ever, um, playoff game, mm. uh, in school history. And so starting to slowly break the mold a little bit. And then our fourth year there, uh, was our championship year. We won the, the, the GNAC title outright. Mm. Um, we got our first ever NCAA bid into the tournament uh, and, uh, a lot of firsts and it was great. And then, you know, we had a really loaded team coming back, um, which is a whole nother story, but we, uh, you know, they continued to win at a high level. Yeah. And I'm very proud of that too. Uh, you know, that we, we left the table full and, and so that those kids could be successful when we left. And I just saw such promise long-term at Regis and, and just such an attractive place that I couldn't pass it up and that's where I wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. So then just for context for my listeners, mm-hmm. after you had your best year at Western Oregon, you come, you take the head coach job, head coaching job at Regis, which ended, which was my senior and final season as a player. And so you and I collided in, in that way. So you were taking over the program. Our program had struggled for quite a few years. Every year that I had been there, we were towards the bottom of the conference. I was underperforming, had issues with confidence and anxiety and was not playing well or happy. I, I didn't really like basketball anymore, frankly, but I really wanted to stay on scholarship and get my degree. And so when you came in and you know had that, we had a very intense kind of tryout period and I was really happy to remain on the team for my senior year, but I didn't have great expectations that I was going to be contributing. Um, mm-hmm. And so when the year started to unfold, I mean, I, the, the new culture really resonated with me. I, I found this new spark of passion for competition and for, um, and for, you know, I just kind of refell in love with the game of basketball and my shots started to fall. Um, and, and I earned a spot in the starting lineup and we were competitive again. And it was this really happy ending to my playing career. And I'm forever grateful for that experience. It really, I think, shifted my life trajectory in some ways because it kind of, I had like kind of a philosophical shift at that point where things kind of changed for me in a lot of different ways. And so I, there's so many ways we could go in this conversation, but I think what I want to get into now is just some of the kind of philosophies and principles that stuck with me 
since playing for you and then, you know, I, I coach for you. I was a graduate assistant for two years after I got done playing and I got my master's. So I kind of got to, I got to be a part of the program as a player and a coach. So I want to just bounce around and ask you some questions about some of the principles that stuck with me and maybe drill down a little bit deeper than I remember. So I want to first ask, when you first arrived, one of the things that struck me was that everything we did, almost everything we did was a competition, whether it was practice or it was in the weight room and our results were posted and there was an emphasis on competing and there were consequences for losing and you got rewarded for winning. So I'm curious as to why you structure your practices and your program in that way. So, so many reasons. Um, and it's, and it's a really important question. When, when I came in to Regis and, and you were there, uh, you know, the, um, the most important thing to, to do the priority for the next 12 months was to, I hate using the word culture because it's so overused, <laughs> but let's say standards, um, and, and a way of being, uh, we need to establish our own way of being. We need to establish our own standards. This is what we stand for. This is what we will represent. This is how we're going to behave, look, talk, etc. Right. Mm. And, uh, it's like that anytime you enter an organization, especially a new organization. And in my opinion, it really didn't matter what the situation was before we came in because I was going to purchase it completely, meaning I was going to buy everything that was coming with Regis basketball. Okay. Hmm. And I, now I have ownership over not just what happens from here forth, but what you went through in your first two years and what your teammates went through in previous years. I would be in the middle of it, okay? And I would wear it with you. And then together, we were going to pave right over the top of whatever it was, whether you were 25 and 0 and had just won a championship or 5 and 20 and had just been, had the worst year of your life. We were going to pave right over the top of whatever that was, okay? And we were going to pave over the top of it with the only way that we know how to do things, meaning our staff. Okay. We know how we have a vision for this program. We have a roadmap for this program. We know how to do it. It's just a matter of executing it now. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so regardless of what came before really had, it's not inconsequential because you have to understand it. But, uh, in terms of implementing, here's what we're about. Here's what our standards are. Here's what we believe in. Um, it really didn't matter. We we're going to pay right over the top of whatever there was there anyway. Okay. Regardless of any of it. So competition is a foundational cornerstone of, in my opinion, any quality um, program, especially when you're talking about sports, right? I mean, it's the, it's the very nature. It's, you can't separate the two. That's what sports is. It's competition. Mm. It's, a, you know, an athletic competition. So, 
Um, and, and the results are very clear, right? Like the measurement on that is very, very clear. Mm-hmm. And the scoreboard, as they say, has no heart. It has no feelings. It doesn't care about how you feel. You either won or lost at the end of the road. And, and such is very true in life in so many ways. So I think that we have to operate with that as a foundational piece. Now, there's a whole lot more value than just winning and just losing gives you. But when you talk about culture, there is a culture you know when you walk into a locker room mm-hmm. and spend 30 seconds in there. You can probably tell if that's a winning team or a losing team. Mm-hmm. You may not even be familiar with the sport. I could walk into a field hockey locker room and I could probably tell you within a minute if that's a winning team or a losing team. I would guess. I would love to have take on that challenge. Mm-hmm. But there's a culture that comes with – there's a culture of winning and a culture of losing competition and the nature of what competition is, I think is at the center of that. And, um, now you have to have a a lot of things in place. I mean, you have to have good enough talent and you have to have all these things, but winning cultures sometimes lose. Like we didn't win very much your senior year. You know, we failed in that. Um, if you're using that metric, right, we failed a lot and we, what were we nine and, uh, 19, yeah, and it's interesting because it felt so much like we were actually competing in games, so it felt so much better. And a lot of our losses were close, but yeah, we ended up on the wrong side of most games, yeah. So you take it with context and you understand that there's going to be um, a certain amount of of you know failure that comes with the long-term success, and it's just an inevitable part. But when it comes to the nature of competition – the entire point of this is why we do this as much as we possibly can every day together is because if you accept losing into your life, then that's really where the losing culture comes from. It's the acceptance of which you can understand it. I can understand that we were nine and 19 and probably realistically, we weren't going to be ever be much better than that. No matter what we did, that's just probably who we were. Yeah. Um, but, uh, that didn't make us complete failures. So I have, you know, we have, um, you know, the, the winning and losing isn't the only measurement, right? But, and for so many reasons, that was such a, an exceptional year for us. Um, but to understand losing and to accept losing are two different things. And so this is where it is important to understand what the sort of culture is that you're stepping into when you're taking over an organization, because you you need to understand what those people have been through and um, so that you can meet them where they are and help guide them out of what they would otherwise you know be uh, find themselves doing and guide them towards the things that we need them to do if that makes sense competition is where uh, is where the truth comes out if you can if you have pure competition then you see where people begin to fall on the spectrum, you know, mm. of being competitors, who, who really does, you know, and you add any kind of level of pressure to it. Now you get to really evaluate what guys are made of, um, and who you can count on and who you can trust in certain situations. And so, and they'll understand over time that, you know, this is a, a sort of a cornerstone way of being for us, that we are competitors and this is what we do and we'll never accept, accept losing. And I remember, going into the locker room after games probably said this too many times that year 
you know, do not accept this. This is unacceptable for us. And it's not that I was putting blame on the players. On the contrary, we would do the opposite. Again, ownership is starts with me, right? And we all in it together. We're we're in this swamp together. But but being in the swamp and accepting being in the swamp are two different things. And so, um, and I think that's where uh, once the uh, the players take foothold in that idea that competition is the way out, is the way to what they you know need to become, and and understanding the nature of competition and incorporating that into their lives and into their daily practices as people, then that's where you begin to build, you know, you know, in combination with, of course, you know, getting stronger and getting better and the skill build, all these things, you know, now you're building on top of a, a foundation of understanding the nature of competition. I think that's where you can build a championship organization. Yeah. Yeah. And on just to, add some more context to that answer with a little story. I remember after you got the job, the first time you walked into the locker room, this was after my junior season in, in the spring. I remember you walked in and for the first 45 seconds or so after you walked in, the air was so tight and it was, you didn't say anything. It was silent. And all you did was take a marker and you wrote RMAC championship on the, on the whiteboard. And I remember me and Dylan looked at each other like, oh, fuck, things are changing around here. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that was one of the first moments where I knew, okay, this is, we're in for something very different now. And that that was kind of a symbolic moment for the new culture that we were building. And for us, having been at the bottom of the conference for the time that I had been there and all the other returners, our MAC championship seemed like this mountain that was impossible to climb. And so, you know, but after my senior season, even though we only won nine games, it didn't seem impossible anymore. And then two years later, you won the RMAC championship. So it was very, and I was a part of the coaching staff there. So seeing that change and that build in three short seasons was really fascinating. Um, what does it mean to you to not allow softness in the gym? Mm. Well, I think, you know, I think the answer is kind of just a, a continuation of what I was just saying about the nature of competition. You know, um, as coaches, we value so many things. You know, you're recruiting and you're developing players and, you know, you always want the bigger, better gun, the better athlete, the better this, the taller kid. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes that's the best thing that you can do is get a bigger, taller, better gun, mm -hmm. right? Weapon. I mean, yeah. a, a kid who can really do some things is different, right? But, um, and, and that's part of it, obviously. Um, but when you're, when you put that kid under pressure, the real question is, okay, how much that talent comes out in a winning way? And I think what kind of the substance that ties together talent with to winning is toughness mm. you know there's some other ones communication would be one mm. but there's you know if a kid is just soft especially mentally physically that's really easy to see right um it, it, mentally it's not as easy to see all the time um and not as easy to say well i don't know it, it, 
toughness is one of those things that's that's difficult to train and instill or, or I guess uh, develop in kids once they're in college. Mm. Okay. But I do think that it can be stoked and emphasized in a way that whatever that kid's got inside of them, if they know it's important to at least, you know, that toughness is valued and, and that this is how we need to react in this situation in a mentally tough scenario, you know, that insofar you can train that you can train toughness. Okay. Mm. You can pull out of kids what is already there and you know, you can develop it a little bit, right? You can, you can play a whole lot of three on three full court, no dribble, you know? <laughs> oh God, I just got a bad, I just got a bad shiver down my spine. <laughs> yes, I knew you would. <laughs> um, and you know, that is talk about a toughness builder, right? Well, it's also a toughness revealer mm-hmm. and you can measure a kid over the course of a year to four years about how they handle a drill like that as an example of, okay, how much toughness are we actually developing? You know, and is that fitness or is it toughness? Um, I do know the more comp- competitive scenarios you put players in and the more pressure you put them under, the more often, the more valuable data points you're going to get on that kid and what's going to come out in a game under pressure. And when you're trying to win a championship and, uh, you know, the, I don't want to digress too much. You know, when you write RMAC championship on the board um, and you say, tell the team, I don't know when this is going to happen, but it's going to happen. And it's going to happen on my watch. We are doing this. Mm-hmm. And from this day forth, all actions will be put to, uh, towards getting this done. Right. And what you're doing is you're, you're painting a picture for those kids of this idea, right. Of championship. You're, 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 you're drawing a mural for them and a target. Um, that's, you don't just don't know how far away the target is. Yeah. If you can't see, you can't do it. Well, toughness is like that, right? It's one of those, it's one of those, uh, it's, it's part of the rope that you're gonna have to climb every single day to get to that mountaintop. And, um, you can get away with having a soft kid or two here and there, but you know, when too much of that, uh, will get you beat, you know, and some of these kids, you know, they, they look great, you know, and the whole thing about, you know, they're, they they look great coming off the bus and all that stuff, but Mm -hmm. you know, really. The, the fabric that ties, you know, that substance that ties ability to winning is, is toughness. And so again, let's, let's try to do a good job recruiting, but then let's also make sure that we're hitting that with, uh, with our development as well. And we're, and we're, you know, banging that drum a lot. So they know the emphasis is important. They know that this is part of your path to success in this program is going to be, you got to be a tough dude. Yeah. Um, and so accepting softness to tie it back is, is just like accepting losing. Right. Mm. And to, to, does that mean we're all going to be perfect? No, of course not. We're going to, we're going to let softness creep into our gym once in a while, but we got to have enough courage to call each other on it and see it when it's there and deal with it when it's there in a real way. Um, and so we can get it out of there as fast as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And related to that, um, you walked us through a method for how to evaluate people or how you evaluate people. And you even mentioned once that this also applies to other parts of your life. Like if you're evaluating a partner 
that might become mm-hmm. your spouse, for instance. Um, can you walk me through the three situations that you should value someone under? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, Billy, I love hearing what sticks with players, mm-hmm. the stories and the lessons and things like that, because you don't always know, mm-hmm. um, unless you ask a lot of questions and then, you know, ultimately later on in time when things like this come back around. But, um, so evaluating people, I think I was at Sacramento state for three years and, and you talk about a rebuilding process. It was, uh, one of the bottom five division one programs in the country when we took over and, you know, it was a, we knew it was going to be a really long-term big, big fix, not a small fix. Um, and I, uh, after year one, coach Katz, who was the head coach there that I worked for, I remember this meeting, he came to this realization and I really agree with him that, you know, probably the most important ability that a coach can have or skill that a coach can have is to clearly evaluate. And, uh, initially what we thought we were talking about was recruiting. Cause that's like all we were thinking about at the time. We got to recruit, we got to recruit, we got to, mm-hmm. and it does. I mean, it's certainly, it's, it's completely applicable. There is the evaluation of, you know, who you're bringing into your organization. It doesn't get any more important than that, mm-hmm. but also just as important as the evaluations of those who are in your program already. And the understanding that, that you have to constantly evaluate because kids change, people change. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you can recruit a kid and you can do all the due diligence, the homework, the back check, all of it, watch them a gazillion times, every different scenario you can think of and you can get them there. And then in a year later, he just might have changed in a way that's really good or that you couldn't have seen or a way that's not so good that you couldn't have seen. Mm. And, you know, people do change. So you have to constantly evaluate, but while you're evaluating, you really have to see clearly because it's easy to see what you want to see. We do it all the time. Mm-hmm. I do it all, right? all the time. You see what you want to see or you make up stories in your own mind about maybe what it could be or, you know, and then you bend your vision towards that. Mm. And um, I'll, I'll give you the three and then I want to go back to a story uh, of, you know, how this became really relevant for me. Um, so the three are, you know, first you want to evaluate people when they get what they want. Okay. When, when things go well for them, you want to look and evaluate that person. Okay. And just to throw a couple of examples out there. Okay. Well, you know, a a kid gets exactly what he wanted for his birthday and, you know, and he opens it up now evaluate. Mm. Did, did, did the kid go across the room and give a meaningful thank you to the person who gave that to him? Did he write a thank you letter the next day? Did he uh, just open it up and go, oh, awesome. And then, you know, throw it and go do something (laughs) different. And, you know, or was he, did he feel entitled when he got that? You know, of course I'm supposed to get this awesome fire truck or whatever. Mm. So now that, you know, the example is a child, right? Mm. But the same thing goes for adults and anybody else, you know, evaluate the player when he just comes off of his best game of his life. He just scored 40 and they won is it all about him or is he, you know, listen, listen to the way he answers the questions from the reporter after the game, watch him when he goes into the locker room, you know, is he making it all about him or is he sharing 
that with his teammates? Is he deflecting some of this, uh, right? Some of the uh, accolades to other places where it is quite deserved. Hmm. Um, is he humble or is he arrogant? And you have to be prepared to see it, even if it's not what you wanted to see, right? You have to be able to listen to what's actually happening in reality. You've got to be prepared for the truth. And sometimes it's not what we want. Okay. But that's the easiest one. Hmm. Okay. And to me, that's like, um, it's like, I got you on a polygraph and I'm asking you, what's your name? Billy Hansen. What's your birthday? <laughs> you know, and you tell me your birthday and that, like, that's the easy one, right? Like now I'm going to measure all other things against that. Hmm. So I see the data on the polygraph and now I'm going to say, okay, I saw you, Billy, when you had your best game of your life and I evaluated you and here's the things that I saw. Now, you know, a week later you have a really lousy game or you have a lousy practice or, you know, something happened that wasn't fair evaluate people number two when they don't get what they want right when they when they get a a big pile of crap mm. and when they were expecting something good so when things don't go their way adversity you put your you know whatever word you want to put on it these are really valuable now we're getting into some really valuable um uh, uh, uh evaluation moments right where you can see clearly what people are made of adversity holy smokes things aren't going your way and it's hard mm. evaluate 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 and this is where as a coach or as a parent or whatever you're going to want to blink sometimes <laughs> you don't oh, tell me he didn't just do that you know <laughs> tell me my child did not just react that way okay we got some learning to do here you know okay. but don't blink don't blink because it is it's only what it is and and these are things that you can get better at if you have somebody who cares enough to help you through it Hmm. And, uh, number three, and most importantly, in, in my opinion, you know, adversity is a huge one, right? Hmm. Um, but if I got to pick one out of all of them, it'd be evaluate people under pressure, mm -hmm. under pressure. And that can be adversity too, right? But pressure situations, pressure comes in a lot of different forms, right? I mean, it, uh, you know, the immediate sports one is, you know, big game on the road or, you know, you know, last two minutes of the game, you know, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean, did he make the basket or not when he had a shot? Did he, you know, um, did the ball go in? It's not necessarily results yeah. driven. Evaluate what happened. Who was the person in that scenario? Did they shrivel up and, you know, in the biggest moments, did they get nervous? Did they, um, become, argumentative and all of a sudden this behavior comes out that you haven't seen before and they're they've got bench demeanor that you go what the heck where is this coming from hmm. um you know, or are they cool calm and collected are they poised are they mentally tough are they mentally weak are they you know the list goes on right hmm. but that is the greatest measurement you can have now the best measurement is all three of them and you can see all your data points and and draw your picture of okay this is all it gives you is where you are on the day. This is the evaluation on the day. Now you got to wake up tomorrow and you got to reevaluate everything again. You got to teach, you got to help them, you got to help the pupils see what it is, but then you got to go back and we got to keep evaluating all the time and just collect data, collect data. Hmm. And I, I really do think, Billy, to, you know, when you ask the question, when you're evaluating a spouse, when you get really serious about a person that you may want to be your life partner, holy smokes, you better. <laughs> 
have a clear picture of what's important to you, you know, and, and what is that? What is that person like when they get what they want? What is that person like when they're not getting what they want? What is that person like under a, some kind of pressure scenario? Hmm. Uh, what do they do? And if you look at that and you cringe and you go, Ugh, ooh, that was, I didn't like that at all. You know, maybe that's not a good fit for you, but are you willing to look at it? Because, you know, she might be a 10, right? She might, <laughs> or whatever. Are you willing to look at it yeah. and see it for what it is and say, do I want to spend my life with that? And, and, um, you know, same thing with friends, right? Same things with employees. If you're an employer, I mean, just the list goes on, just people around you. Um, and it doesn't have to come with, uh, you know, a good person, bad person. It just is what it is. You know, we're all imperfect people. Um, but if you want to get a clear evaluation, I think those are the three areas where you need to pay particular attention. Yeah. I, I love that principle. And I try to keep that in mind in my own life. It's definitely something I, that most stuck with me from my time with you. Another thing that, so in relationship to evaluating people, this probably has the most to do with recruiting and roster building in the context of basketball, but it also has direct implications for any kind of leadership role, whether you're a, a business owner or a boss or somebody who's making hires. You recommend, you once recommended the book Good to Great to Me by Jim Collins. That's his name, right? Jim Collins. Uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. One of the concepts he has, I didn't, and I heard, I'd heard you say this before, before I read the book, but it's, make sure that the right people are on the bus. It's something like that, right? Um, right. And it is, he makes a very compelling argument about it. And it's on the surface a little bit callous almost, but just the kind of, you know, he argues that one of the most important things that, well, let me backtrack for a second. This book, Good to Great, he did this very detailed analytical study of, very successful companies and he did a really thorough job controlling for all different variables. So it wasn't just companies that are kick-ass, but it's companies who are in similar situations to other companies who are much more kick-ass than the companies that they're competing with. And he tried to tease out the, the things that made those companies great. So the, hence the book title, Good to Great. And one of the things he emphasized was this, you need to have the right people on the bus um, principle in that making sure that the right people who the people who are going to be pulling in the direction that's going to be helping the company and everyone else are part of your company and being very strict about that. Can you talk about how that principle has influenced you as a coach and maybe expand on that idea and what it means to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I will start with um, the story I wanted to kind of tell. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I forgot to on my last answer. But when I worked for Coach Dunlap, and he, by the way, is the one that introduced me to that book. Mm. Uh, no surprise. Um, he, after my first year with him, which was easily the most difficult year of my life uh, mm. in terms of being comfortable, being pushed out of my comfort zone all the time and my learning curve and just, uh, just, I, you know, uh, forced out of my 
out of my shell in so many ways, forced to, you know, confront insecurities and, and things like that. Um, and grew so much at the end of this year, I remember he, he, I sat down in his office and he said, Hey, um, in just a really beautiful way that he, um, you know, gave me this message, but it was the, the, essentially the message was what I figured out about you in a year. Uh, one thing about you is that you tend to see through rose tinted glasses. And what he meant was, I won't necessarily, I don't naturally, um, I blink, right? You know, when, when you're evaluating or putting judgment on something, which you were forced to do in this job, in this profession, and, um, and many, many others, uh, that I tend to blink or I tend to um, shift my vision towards what I want to see. Mm. Okay. And so I'm not really, I really wasn't living in truth, um, with myself and I would be able to, now, was it a destructive way? No, but I was just had a hard time with conflict and, you know, so just uncomfortable with, you know, certain things, you know, personally with being able to be in a situation like that. And I just wanted things to be okay. So I would see them that way. Mm. And he was spot on a thousand percent. It made so much sense to me in the way that he said it. And, really, and his vision of me in that scenario, as he evaluated me, was so helpful for me um, because I trusted him and I trusted his input and he was spot on. So from that point forward, it was really turn, really a turning point for me in my ability to live um, and see clearly in a completely or as close to it as I possibly can, you know, live in this honest forward manner all the way through. Um, and I was never, you know, some deceitful liar or something like that. I just would, I wouldn't necessarily confront all the hard truths. Well, when you're evaluating people, and your question is about getting the right people on the bus. Um, that the people you surround yourself with is one of the most important decisions you can make as a person. And you talk about another way of valuing people. Look at who they hang out with, right? <laughs> look who they surround themselves with. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know that that does say a lot about them. You know, their life partner, their their best friends. Um, and so forth, the people they choose to be with and, um, surrounding yourself with the, with, with the right people that stand for the right things is so important. But in order to do that, you do have to evaluate people clearly and you have to know what you want and what you don't want. So any organization, and I believe that this is a transparent truth. I think you could take it to any organization, any, any discipline. I think that this is a life truth is that everything, every organization, the most important thing is the people. It starts with people. So you say, what, what are your priorities in year one or your first hundred days or, you know, whatever the first answer is going to be something having to do with people. Mm. Well, so in a basketball terms, it is, I'm going to get my staff right first. I'm going to get my roster right. Second, I'm going to get the right people on the bus, mm. right? I'm going to get, if we're going on this journey towards, towards a championship, towards excellence, towards whatever your, you know, lofty goals are, and you want that achievement to be a part of the story, 
you got to start with the people who you are surrounding yourself with. Okay. And then you got to take care of those people, right? It's always going to be about people first, things second. So, um, it's just that. And I would start with staff. I think that's the most important thing. I think if you get your staff right, then that helps you get your roster right. That means if you can trust your staff inherently, you don't have to wonder if they have some kind of personal agenda or political angle or, you know, whatever it is Hmm. um, that you can count on and depend on them, then you're going to move much more efficiently and your roster is inevitably going to be right, if not right away, then in time. And, um, and then once you get your roster, right. Um, then as the book goes on, I don't want to get out, you you know, too far in front, then you got to figure out which, what the right roles are for each person, right? What seats are they sitting in? Hmm. And, um, that's kind of the next step. But, but I think, I think Jim Collins hit it nail on the head, man, getting the right people on the bus. And I now understand it, um, anecdotally, you know, being in it and, um, building my own staffs, my own, you know, our own rosters and making, you know, relevant changes in those things. Um, who you surround yourself with is absolutely the most important thing you can do for your organization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that can be, that can come from some really hard decisions in the short term. I, I sort of like to think about it. It's in relationship to this is like when you, when you do wear those rose colored glasses and you cover over the hard truths, it's, it's like you get a short term reward with comfort, but it always comes with a debt that you'll have to pay off later. And that can, mm. the more that you accumulate those little comfortable truths in the short term, the more that, the, you know, the dragon's coming later <laughs> down the path. So really well said. That can sound kind of grim, but I, you know, I, I'm certainly not perfect at this and I, there's a lot of room to improve, but just trying to sacrifice in the short term and confront those things before they grow is um, something that I think is really, really important. And one of the things that I took from you, um, coach, we're running up on about an hour here. Do you have a hard cutoff or can you keep going for a little while? Uh, this is the most important thing I'm doing today, Billy. Okay. Excellent. Well, I have a few more questions then. So another thing that speaking about the, the growth that you experienced with coach Dunlap, something that happened for me when I joined your staff, was in the staff meetings, um, you would ask very direct and pointed questions about that required a, a judgment decision, a yes or no answer or a, a clear answer. And there were a few times early on in the meetings where I tried, I, I, looking back on it, I don't think I was aware of this at the time, but I was trying to sugarcoat them because I didn't want necessarily want to disagree with you or what I thought your opinion would be as the leader. Um, and I also was, I guess, afraid to take a firm stance on something. And so the more mm-hmm. that I kind of danced around the answer, sometimes you would just move on to the next person. <laughs> it felt, it felt kind of like a sting, but I'm really grateful for that because it didn't take me long that when you when, when you asked a question to the staff, I had to actually come up with an answer that was my honest opinion and communicate that quickly. And then the same thing was true during our halftime adjustments where we had probably three and a half minutes to talk about our, I don't know what the exact time was, but it was a short time frame before we met with the team to communicate everything that needed to be communicated. And so 
there were moments where I had to have the courage to say, no, no, no I, 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 I'm seeing it this way for these reasons. And the fact that you would listen to all of us and even if I was saying something that was counter to what your, you had just said or what I, I, I expected you to think, you would listen to it. I didn't mean you always acted on it, but as long as I was being honest and clear and forthright, that was the, the expectation. So do you want to, why is that honest communication and quick? I think you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there was something to the, it's like, it was like you wanted to get an unfiltered answer from the staff. And that's why we went around quickly. Is, was there something to that? Did you have a philosophy surrounding those style, that style of communication? Yeah, absolutely. So your question takes me back to being in Coach Dunlap's staff meetings where I was constantly under uh, uh, uncomfortable. And I think in human nature, and this happens all the time in organizations all over the place, is that we oftentimes have, a, many of us have a tendency to try to guess the right answer, right? The right answer is what yeah. the boss already has in his mind, his or her mind, right? And and you have a tendency to want to try to get the right answer so that you feel good or validate or whatever the case is. And it's hard sometimes to be a leader of an organization and draw from your people who you desperately need feedback from in a way that you're, you know, you're getting that you can trust the feedback you're getting because of all you're getting is what their best guess of what you think <laughs> yeah. or what you want them to say. Right. So if that's all you're getting, you can't trust it. Mm. And, and you know, the, the time's coming where that's going to damage your, your organization, right? Like if you can't, it, it's not who gets the best answer. It's do we get the best answer? Do we get the right answer? Mm -hmm. And so I think in terms of culture building on staff in particular, uh, where, you know, especially in sports. So some places, some organizations, you know, the, they don't necessarily have the same time constraints that athletics does, right? We've got a 15 minute halftime. The last four should be spent warming up, which means you got 11 minutes to uh, get your kids into the locker room, hydrating and doing what they need to do, having meaningful dialogue in their own right, while you and your staff have meaningful dialogue to solve problems, you know, and tweak game plans and make adjustments and whatever you need to do, followed by orating those and clearly communicating them to your team. All of that needs to happen in that finite period of time. So if you're not ready to, um, if you don't already have prepared your answers, your conclusions, your thoughts, your opinions, um, then you start mumbling around and bumbling over your words and just trying to not sound like a fool, right? Yeah. So there's, you have to be able to rely on your staff for these for these moments and when you're training for that kind of pressure and i mean timeouts are even worse right you have 30 seconds yeah. you have a 60 second timeout and you got to go talk to your team but you know how do you get meaningful uh feedback from your staff from the other eyeballs that are seeing the game and how much do you trust it well if you want to develop that trust then you got to have it in the office first so i just think you have to create an environment where the expectation is 
one, you really actually are required to tell me what you think. And then also you have to back it up about why you think that. Mm-hmm. And so it can't be half-baked answer. Half-baked answers are political answers, which would be like, you know, you you answer based on the reaction you want to get, right? That would be political. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these things are rampant in, in staffs everywhere, on organizations everywhere. Mm-hmm. And unless you can create the environment and, and enforce an environment that you want, that the only acceptable um, uh, uh, comments are ones that are um, your true opinion, and you can back it up with a sensible, logical way of thinking. Because if you can't, then what are you saying it for, right? Yeah. What's your What's your well, You know, I'm going to challenge you on. Okay, what's your thinking? This is these are the things that the exercises that we went through in Coach Dunlap's office, and he added a, a little bit probably different way of doing it than, than I did. Cause he's a different person. Yeah. And I mean, he's him, but in essence, I think in many ways we arrived at similar positions where it's, you've got to be able to make your people feel, um, comfortable enough with the fact that they can do those things. And if you don't, you don't have trust. And if you don't have trust, you got a shy shelf life. I mean, you just, you're just, you're waiting to fail, mm. you know, in, in your organization. So, mm. um, so I love hearing your perspective on it, Billy. I really do. And I'm, I remember, I mean, I have vague recollections of it, uh, but I've been through the same exercise year in, year out as we have ad staff and change staff over. Um, no one or almost no one is really actually comfortable with that when they come in. And if they are, it's a person like coach Dan Snyder, right? Who you had on one of your early podcasts, who's been through life, man. And the guy's, yeah. you know, he's a different phase, you know, in any other given circumstances, I'd be working for him, you know, <laughs> and he's a mentor of mine yet. He's technically my assistant, right? So like he's in that phase, you know, he's, I already know, and I had history with him. Sorry to know like, we could trust, you, but yeah, you know, he's going to be very, uh, very, very comfortable in that scenario right off the bat. But that's the exception. And, um, Anyway, so yeah, how it's you. Um, I remember you being in staff meetings, and I remember the message that I would send to you or to somebody else in the same circumstance would be when I sensed either whether it was just a half baked answer or you're guessing, you're trying to guess my answer, or um, you know, if somebody gives me a BS answer, I'm I'm going to do one of a few things. I'm either going to pass right over the top as if I just don't have time for that. I'm going to almost <laughs> wave you off and I move on to the next guy. And I'm, I'm intentionally sending you a message, right? Of, yeah. Uh, it, it, and I think that probably did happen, Billy, with you once or twice. Right. But then like you figure it out mm-hmm. and it, you, that's part of the problem. Like I, that's how I intend it to be. Yeah. Okay. And I'm, and so when I'm, when I'm sort of waving you off, I'm not being rude or disrespectful to you. And in fact, I'm saying, that's not good enough because you're smarter than that and you'll learn, but just follow, you know, listen and follow and you'll get better next time. And then if I continually hear, you know, somebody trying to guess the right answer or a line of BS or something like that, then I will call you on it in front of the group. I'm not going to do it the, maybe necessarily the, the very first time it happens. Mm-hmm. But when I see a pattern forming, right? No, you got, you know what? You're not really getting it here. Here's what I keep getting from you. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, 
here's what we need. And if we don't get this, this isn't a very good fit for you. Okay. But we need this because you're smart and you have two eyeballs and an angle on what's happening that I don't have and I can't have. And I really need your input and I value it. Okay. And then as you kind of start to understand that, um, then you begin to be valued. You have more ownership over things. And now you know, and you'll know when you answer whether I agree with you or not, or your, your idea became, uh, you know, put into practice or not that you had meaningful impact input and you were listened to. Yeah. And, um, then you can buy in right then and only then you can buy into what's happening. Mm -hmm. And then, then, and only then I can trust you that I'm getting, you know, the information that I need from you. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked about that master's class that you didn't get, get a degree seeing you and Dan and coach Kaufman model that kind of communication was such a life hack for me that I think helped me out in so many ways. Like, I'm not sure where I would have gotten that otherwise, just the fact that you all could have honest and firm conversations without any ego getting in the way, um, with clear direction. I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to put down anything else that I'm doing, but I've, I've worked in quite a few jobs since working for you or even in, in conjunction with working for you when I was like in your staff meetings and working at a restaurant at the same time and seeing the disparity between the kind of communication that was going on was really helpful and, mm -hmm. and striking. And yeah, I've been in office meetings, especially at a job I had a few jobs ago where it really was like we'd spend an hour and nothing was said. <laughs> it was like we were just like putting sound waves into the air without getting anywhere. Um, and having been through your uh, the, that kind of communication, I, I could recognize it. And I hope, I think I'll, you know, angle in my life into a situation where I'm in some kind of a leadership role someday. And I'm glad that I had that kind of, that training. Um, another thing that, I noticed early on and that I was obviously important to you. And I forgot, I think you had some kind of a phrase for this that you, and maybe you can remind me, but just about tracking what you care about or what you, um, I forgot how you put it, but just that the things that you want to be good at or improve, you have to measure is, do I, am I remembering that correctly? And do you want to expand on that? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think, I think this is another important one. You ask great questions, Billy. I, I, you do. And I might, well, I just want to say this. It didn't take you real long to latch on to this. And it didn't surprise me that it did. you were a natural fit. And I think it was uncomfortable for you at the beginning for totally natural, normal reasons. Mm. But you are a, you were, you were one of us and you're probably smarter than all of us. <laughs> and once you kind of just got, the idea that oh this is what we do you jumped right in and um and that process is a lot of fun for me to be a part of with other people you know mm -hmm. because i just remember how painful I, I you know i'm a slow learner in a lot of ways and i'm more naive than most people are in so many ways so i had to learn all these things and it took an embarrassingly long time for me to, and sometimes, you know, to learn some of these lessons. Um, but, but thank goodness I surrounded myself with great people and had great people that took time with me. Um, because otherwise I wouldn't, you know, 
uh, I wouldn't be able to do this with or for anybody else. And I, I really think that my mentors are on the right track. Another good question here about, you know, um, the answer is you are what you measure mm. or another way of saying it was, you are what you emphasize. Mm. So in a lot of coaches will tell you, it's not what you teach it's what you emphasize, emphasize. Mm. Um, and which means, you know, I can, the difference is, is that what are you paying attention to and sharing feedback with, with your, let's say player or team, right? If you are constantly um, going back to ball movement, say, and emphasizing ball movement and stopping the practice and praising it when it's good and noting it when it's not good and redoing it, you're emphasizing that that point, okay? And you are going to get what you emphasize. Then your players are going to go and they are going to move the ball the way that you're asking them to do it because you are emphasizing it. That's different than teaching ball movement. Mm. Okay. And teaching is, is a bit different, right? So what you're really, the more important thing in practice in what you do is what you are emphasizing. Okay. And, um, so then to get more specific to your question is also what you measure. Okay. And, uh, coaches are certainly guilty of this, especially very smart coaches that want a lot of information. And there's a lot of us out there or them out there who, you know, the analytics are so popular now and, and the math of the game and mm-hmm. people diving into and, you know, you know, professional teams are hiring MIT guys right and left to, you know, be their analytics guys, you know, on the sidelines of the NFL and all that. And, um, you know, these things are, are valuable and important, but but can be very quickly overdone when it gets put into practice Mm -hmm. with your team. There's only so much that you're going to be able to emphasize. I can go into practice and say, Hey, today we are emphasizing offensive rebounding. Now it's my job to then actually emphasize offensive rebounding. So whether we actually do a rebounding drill or not, whether we, meaning why did we teach it right or not? If we go into practice and, four out of five things that I'm talking about every time I stop practice and talk is about offensive rebounding. I am doing a heck of a job of emphasizing that. Hmm. But if I go into practice and I go, Hey, uh, we're going to emphasize offensive rebounding today. That's our, that's our emphasis. Got it. Okay. Everybody let's get going. But really what my communication with my team is, is once I talk about offensive rebounding and then I'm talking about um, screen setting. And then I'm talking about the quality of the cuts and I'm talking about defensive transition and the, right. The more I water it down, I'm really not working on anything. Mm. We're really not emphasizing anything. Right. Mm. And ultimately those are your practices are going to be your most worthless practices, quite frankly. Yeah. Maybe not worthless altogether, but they're going to be your worst practices. The best practices are the ones where you can have clear measurements and clear emphases. And that's what you're doing. One to two things is about what you're going to emphasize in a given practice. Well, when you're taking stats and you got, you know, if I was a NBA guy and I had an MIT guy on my staff who's crunching all these numbers and giving me all these things, he needs to know. I can ask him a gazillion questions and he can give me a gazillion answers. But at the end of the day, we've got to be able to whittle this down to a few categories that are that are going to 
um, define who we are as a team. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're not going to be the best rebounding team and the best shot selection team and the best, uh, turnover margin team and the best, uh, you know, defensive transfer and the best, this and the best that we're not, you know, we're not going to be the best at everything. So pick what you want to stand for, pick what your team, you know, choose the thing or two or three that you can emphasize over the course of time that, that are most important to you, your philosophy, your team, whatever it is, decide what those are and then measure the heck out of those. If it's more than a handful of things, a few things, you're overdoing it and you're not going to get any of those. Uh, you're watering down your product. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think coaches, I think it's an easy trap to fall into for coaches. And I'm sure if I, we went into the realm of some other business, you know, and that kind of thing that it would be easy trap to fall into. What are your measurements that are really important and keep coming back to them, keep coming back to them, keep coming back to them. And that's, that's who you are. You're defining who you are as a team and, and what your trademarks are and how you're going to win and how you're going to lose. That's what uh, you're really defining by your emphasis and your measurements. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I've actually been thinking about that in relationship to my own life path or, or daily routine. Um, not sure how the, this is just coming to mind now. The, after I got done with basketball and even out of my master's programs and then into my job, I used to have such a defined, you know, set of standards from like my classes. I've got to get A's in my classes. I've got to perform on the court. I've got to be in shape. I had all these things. And then when I left, it was like the world opened up and it was really wide and I wanted to do all of these different things. And what I've learned and I've I've had conversations with my little brother about this is like, it's kind of a harsh reality, but in the, the same way that you create a practice plan and you can't, you can't work on offensive rebounding, D-trans, ball screen coverages, and 10 other things in one day, you also really have to kind of chop the fat out of your own routine and spend your time well. Because, you know, for a while I wanted to do, there were six different projects that I wanted to work on and I wanted to be, I wanted to meditate for an hour a day. I wanted to exercise. I wanted to take these supplements. I wanted to you know, listen to these new albums. And for a while, like you said, if you try to do everything, you won't do anything at all. And so relating that principle to even like building your own routine of your day or the people who you spend your time with or the the, the things that you put your attention on, attention is the only, is like the, is your most valuable resource. And so really selecting the things that you want to commit to it's it's a sacrifice of everything else, but then you actually are working on something and getting better at it and, and being productive. And that's a more fulfilling way to be, I think, for those of us who are trying to improve or, you know, find value in our in our in, in for ourselves and others in life. So I could not have said it better, Billy. That's uh well articulated. I and I think that's I think you're spot on. And um I think, you know, back to Coach Snyder, you know, he's famous for saying life's full of trade-offs. Mm-hmm. In so many ways, we've got to decide in our own lives what is most important to us. And part of the trade-off is going to be, okay, well, how, you know, it's going to be, the results are going to be directly impacted on how you spend your time, where you spend your time. And so, you know, is that time spent with family? Is that time spent with your 
career, is that time spent with your practice, is that time spent with your hobbies? Um, and there's no wrong answer. It's just how you want to do it, but you got to understand that there's trade-offs, right? And so if you start, you know, wanting to have the discussion of being excellent at something or really achieving at a high level at something, yeah. then you got to understand inherently that there's got to be trade-offs. You are really going to sacrifice things, right? Yeah. In your life. And, um, and I, I think, I think it all does tie together. I think I was beautifully, you tied it together beautifully with you are what you measure. You are what you emphasize. You are, you know, what you spend your time doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, are you, uh, I don't think we missed anything on the, on what I wanted to get to. Are you ready for some rapid fires? Yeah, as long as you know that I think very slowly. Well, okay, we can then we can do slow rapid fires. <laughs> no, yeah, as long as you want to take on these. Okay, I'll do my best. Let's do it. Okay, LeBron, Jordan, or Kobe, and why? Uh, yeah. Um, so Michael Jordan is, uh, in my opinion, clearly the greatest um, because he had the mental advantage over anybody else who has played that game uh, he had a mental edge uh, you know the last dance i thought a lot of people drew different conclusions than i did off of that but you know i knew this from watching him when i was growing up but then also you know reading about him hearing about him but then the last dance i thought for me really solidified it and that you could sort of see behind the scenes and what that guy went through and how ex you could imagine just how exhausting emotionally and mentally it must have been to be him. I cannot honestly cannot imagine mm. what that was like for him. But yet, at the highest stage, under the greatest pressures, he was always at his best. And really, you know, he didn't fail. I mean, he's six and zero in the. You know, he never went to. He never went to Game Seven in the finals. Yeah, six and zero. Um, and he, uh, I just think he had this mental, insatiable um, thirst to win that was pathologically competitive, that he could not or would not shut off. And when the lights were brightest, he was always at his best. And you cannot say that about anybody else maybe bill russell mm. and i don't think bill russell was you know anywhere near the top of the talent you know of the greatest of all time yeah but maybe i don't know I, you know it's all my time i don't know but maybe he was a lot like that mm -hmm. um you know i i think kobe was not far off i think he's extraordinary i was never a, a fan because he was always sort of a um a there was an imposter piece about him where he walked and talked and shot and did all these things like Jordan. It was very clear that he was, mm. you know, trying to be something that he wasn't a lot. Um, that doesn't take away from his greatness. I think mean, he was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. LeBron James is probably better naturally gifted than both of those people. But I've also seen LeBron James flat out quit mm. in a finals, you know, and throw the towel in and, and I've seen him do that. And I know that I think he's actually probably at his best now than mentally than he ever has been in his career, you know, but he, he was coerced or convinced to turn it on in that finals that defined him when he was with the Cavs and maybe the Warriors. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Michael Michael Jordan never had to be coerced or convinced. You know, it just yeah came out. It's just who he was. And so I just think if if you you know gun to your head, who do you want going into a, a, an NBA Finals to win it all? It's just it's easy to me. Mm. You know, and that's 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 the ultimate measurement for me in that uh, argument. But it's a fun argument to have. Yeah, and I encourage everybody to disagree. Yeah, yeah, that's a great answer, great argument, and. I love asking that question to see what you get the, you get the Kobe cult. You just say, ah, Kobe, it's easy. <laughs> but yeah, um, I love that question. And you, most people don't even throw all three of those in. Most people are like Jordan or LeBron, Jordan or Kobe, you know, they won't even give you the third right. one. Like that's not even a, you know, <laughs> right. an option. And I shouldn't, you know, if it was really fair, then yeah, I would throw in people like Wilt and uh, Bill Russell. But just in my generation, sure. this is kind of the the debate that's on Twitter most often. So um definitely what book or books should every aspiring leader read Mm. uh well good to great uh which we've already talked about uh, i think is is one of those without a doubt um a game that uh, or a book that we've talked about um off air now that just came to me this year that was the inner game of tennis yeah i think is now every athlete or anybody I, I just think it's valuable for anybody who's um you know any in or around anything related to sports i just think it's it's brilliant and i can't believe i told you that i can't believe it took me 30 years to find that book yeah um but uh i would now see that one and and then the other one that jumps i'm probably missing something obvious but a third one that jumps off the book that I'm actually rereading now for a second time is the five dysfunctions of the team. Mm. Uh, I think is is brilliant too. I think it's, who's that by it's, it's amongst those other ones. Uh, a guy named, uh, I'll say it wrong, Pat, um, Lencioni. Mm. That's close. I think, um, excellent read, okay. uh, easy reads quick. Um, and just like those other ones, I mean, it's, you know, just really well articulated and, and thought out. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. And I'm happy you like the inner game of tennis. I'm, uh, I'm really pushing that book to anyone who will listen. Cause it's, I, I know I'm younger than you, but I was being interested in, I mean, he doesn't talk directly about meditation, but being interested in the mental side of sports and kind of the paradox of, you know, preparing the mind to kind of like forget about itself. I thought that book was mm-hmm. just the, the clarity with which he wrote about that stuff was so impressive and really helped me put together some of the thoughts that I had been juggling for a long time. So yeah, that's great. That Could not agree with you more. Yeah. Yeah. Could not agree with you more. Really valuable. Yeah. Okay. Let's say you're graduating college today and you're forbidden from becoming a coach. What do you, what are you going to pursue or what few things would you consider pursuing as your career? God, that's a hard question. Um, it's a hard question. I, I have not given that enough thought. So this, since this is rapid fire, I will say the first thing that popped into my head, I would probably be a teacher. Mm. You know, I grew up in a house full of teachers. My parents were both educators. Um, and obviously that's part of who I am now. Um, one of many hats that a coach wears, I would probably be a counselor or a teacher. I think I would have gotten into uh, you know, trying to be around young people and 
you know, help educate, teach, uh, mentor, whatever the case is. I think that's probably just a, a, a part in my DNA enough to say that I probably would have found myself doing something like that. Mm, nice. What failure or difficult time are you most happy to have gone through and is, you've most benefited from? Yeah, such a good question, Billy. Um, you asked somebody else their favorite failure before. That's what I thought was one of my favorite questions I've ever heard. Mm. Um, and I have so many, it's hard to choose. <laughs> uh, there, I, I will, I'll say this. I, I don't want to, um, I want to have a direct answer and I probably don't, but I would say that, you know, my years with coach Dunlap, um, got, I was so uncomfortable so often that I was growing so quickly in such a beautiful way it was just littered with little mini failures all over the place, including honestly, probably the, the one that had the biggest impact was the one I, I already talked to you about but to the, you know, his evaluation of me and his observation of me and the way that I kind of saw the world and, and went about things probably made the biggest impact on the future trajectory of my life and career. Mm. And so if you can call that a failure and I do, I mean, I think that's a shortcoming you know, that I needed to see clearly and have articulated for me myself. And, you know, it came at a time where I think like in your, in your twenties, where if you're paying attention, I think you're doing a lot of, you know, self reflection and establishment of who you are and who you want to be. Yeah. Um, and that's certainly where I was in that phase. And so I think it also came at a beautiful time for me. Um, and, you know, I was sort of forced to, um, look at what it was in a very sort of naked, you can't hide from it way. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and then grow comfortable with that. And that's where I wasn't before. And that's where I think that that's helped me become as a, maybe a better well-rounded adult, you know, that can now help other people see or think through similar things. And, um, uh, so I think, I think those four years with coach were probably, uh, littered with failures a lot like that. Uh, um, and, but that would be one that I've already shared that I think is, is most notable. Nice. Yeah. I love that. If, okay. Last one, if you could give one piece of advice to an athlete graduating high school, who's looking for a good fit at the college level, what would it be? Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So first of all, as an athlete, specifically the things that you are going, that are going to stick with you, that are going to sort of hold water, so to speak, as time goes on, um, have nothing to do with the facilities, have nothing to do with the brand of shoe you're going to wear or how much gear you're going to get or the level even of, of, you know, perceived play that you're entering into. It's going to be Here's what's going to stick. Here's what's going to matter to you after about a month of being in it. Okay. Mm. You're going to care about whether or not that staff cares about you, has a relationship with you and has a plan for you. If they don't have a relationship with you, don't seem to care much, or they don't have a defined role and who you are and have a plan for you and how you can, you know, help, then that's not going to be a very good athletic experience for you. Okay. Uh, second thing is your teammates. 
you know, if you're in a culture that doesn't suit you, um, then you're gonna have a hard time just maybe morally, you know, being there or, uh, you know, you would rather be around people that share the same values or whatever the case is. If that's, if that's the case, that's going to really impact you. And that's going to impact your relationship with your teammates who, if it's a good fit, are going to be some of your best friends for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the things, uh, that ultimately you can, even if some other things fall apart, um, if you have a good relationship with your staff, they have a plan for you. If you have a good relationship with your teammates, um, and there's no like, you know, fundamental moral disconnect, mm-hmm. you're probably going to have a good experience there. Um, so those things I would be aware of, I would tell a senior to be aware of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really easy when you're a senior, you know, a, a naive high school kid going through this for the first time because you only get to go through it once right yeah is you know you're you're every year for that you know it's uncharted territory for them they're going through it for the first time and it's it's things aren't clear and um you've got to be able to um i I think the only other thing i would say is you've got to be able to step foot on campus and say okay if the athletic part fell apart meaning you know, in two years from now or whatever, you know, I was, you know, I couldn't play for whatever reason anymore. Right. They discontinue the sport. I got injured, whatever else. Am I going to be happy here? Could I see myself on this campus? Do I feel good here? Do I feel comfortable here? Do I like the school, the surroundings? There's a gut primal instinct to it. And I think you got to be able to check that box. Mm. Right. And, uh, and if you can do that, and then consider, you know, what I already said about the athletic part, then I think you're setting yourself up for a good decision, you know, and if you can't check all those boxes, it doesn't mean maybe that's your only opportunity and it doesn't check all those boxes. It just means you're taking a bigger risk Mm -hmm. because if things don't go according to plan here, there's not enough to fall back on there to keep you happy Mm -hmm. uh, on the other side of it, you know, and then, and ultimately, if you want to have the best possible experience, you connect on all three of those levels and, you know, it's, it's a beautiful experience and, and you have a, you know, um, the experience we all dream of and hope for. Yeah. Great advice. Um, I think that's really, really worth taking into consideration if there's any young athletes listening to this, that, that was, that was great. Well, that was really, really fun and, um, it was an education. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. As I said in the beginning, I, um, I had this one on my mind when I started the podcast and I, I kind of wanted to sharpen my blade before, um, I had you on because again, yeah, I just want to, I've, I've done this privately, but I want to do this publicly too. Like just thank you so much for all you've done for me. And, you know, I, I do attribute a lot of its luck, the fact that you showed up, but that, that senior season is one of the most special moments or things about my, my life. And I think it put me on a, a different path. That's much better than it, it would have been if I hadn't had that influence and that experience. So, and I'm really grateful that you and I've stayed close and uh, maintained a relationship since I left the coaching staff. So thank you so much for all of that and for coming on the podcast. Billy, your blade is very sharp as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I, I'm a, 
I listened to all. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I know I'm a biased fan because, <laughs> like your family, but um, I, I love what you. Do. I think you're doing a brilliant job. I think I really genuinely love listening to this. I look forward to new episodes coming out, um, and you're doing a terrific job. It's honestly, it's a real honor to be here, and I'm I was looking forward to it. Um, I'd like to just say one last thing too is, uh, you know, you've given uh, passed on a lot of credit, you know to me and and us as a part of your senior year experience and um i just want to say you know you wrote a letter to me um uh, you know i I don't know what it was maybe a couple months after you graduated or might not even been that long afterwards and and just uh, i still have it i'll never I'll, i'll never lose it it was it's one of the more meaningful keepsakes that i've taken with me um where you said a lot of the same things and it just uh ties back and reminds you know me why we get into this thing and the purity of it because of the positive impacts that you can have and the experiences you can have with people that mean a lot to you too Mm. Uh, so i just want you to to say that it took a huge amount of maturity and thought to write that letter and um i'll I'll never lose it means a lot to me Uh, uh, more than you probably know well thanks yeah thanks for saying that and um i meant every word in that and it yeah, kind of just burst out of me after the season, the, the, the gratitude that I had. So thank you again, coach. Um, definitely want to have you back on here, uh, again at some point. And it's, it's also really great watching the games every year, knowing some of what goes on behind the scenes and how the sausage is made. So, um, we didn't, we didn't touch on COVID at all, but you know, I hope there's a season this year and, uh, I look forward to remaining involved with the team and staying close. So thank you again. Well, you always will. Thanks, Billy. Really appreciate it. If you like the podcast, please consider subscribing to my newsletter, which you can find at billyhanson.net forward slash newsletter. This is the best way to stay in contact with my work, as I'll be sending out new podcast announcements along with other written content. You can also support the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribing on Spotify, or sending the podcast to someone who you think might like it. Thank you for listening and for your support. It's a sauce.